Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Think managing media in a country with two national languages can be complicated? Try handling media and marketing in India, a country with over 1.3 billion people, a number of languages and dialects, and a variety of cultural nuances that need to be accounted for. But that's only one of the many pieces that make up the life and career of today's guest, Maz Tanir. Born in Lebanon, Maz's father moved his family to Oman in order to escape the war that was happening at home. After high school, Maz moved to Cyprus to study business at Cyprus College. But while most students enter the workforce after graduation, Maz relocated to England to study acting. Maz eventually returned to Oman, taking a role at OHI, an agency now part of the DDB network. From there, opportunities to work both agency and client side took him to Dubai, Morocco, and India, just to name a few. Maz Tanir stops by to chat about his early life, studying theater in the United Kingdom, the differences between agency life in Dubai and Oman, emigrating with his family to Canada, and the importance of giving back to the media industry. WS was set up about 19 years ago. I think we just celebrated our 19th anniversary to focus on the agriculture, marketing, and animal health industry across North America. And we've been going really strong. We've got some incredible clients. Some of them have been with us right from the beginning, actually. My role, um, and <laughs> I, I wear several hats at the, at, at the company. Um, I, I do take it a very personally, this, this particular job. Um, I, I'm in charge of all the media. So to begin there, I'm responsible for running campaigns across North America, uh, working with clients to introduce them to more digital solutions and tools, finding good, strong uh, data that we can use to, you know, for our audience, uh, as well as running the communications department. So I have the performance team, so the analytics, the performance, uh, the measurement, as well as the content team. So anything to do with uh, blogs, social media, um, and, and and the likes of that. So that's all under my my team that I'm very fortunate to 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 manage at WS. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? So uh, originally born in Beirut, Lebanon. Um, I won't tell you what year because that <laughs> that's going to age me completely. That's okay. But, uh, <laughs> my my father left first. Um, didn't leave us. He, he he left the country in pursuit of something um, a bit safer for us. The war had broken out in Beirut, and he trekked across the Middle East to a country called Oman, um, the Sultanate of Oman. And soon after that, my mother, brother, sister, myself, um, we made our way there and joined him. And and that's really where I was raised. I was raised in Oman. Uh, For those who aren't uh, sure where that is, you've probably heard of Dubai. So Dubai is a four hour drive from Oman. So between Dubai and Oman, we we pretty much grew up there. Uh, did my uh, college studies in Cyprus, and then I moved to England, then back to Oman and back to Dubai. And you know, <laughs> I, I just kept moving around after that. But uh, the, the main place was born in Beirut and raised in Oman. What made your father pick Oman? Because there are a number of countries he, he could have picked in, I guess, the Middle East or or Asia, but he chose that one. So at the time, you know, when when the war was going on in Beirut, I think a lot of it had to do with accessibility, where he can get to at that time, um, based on his qualifications. He wanted somewhere much more quiet. Oman was still in its growth phase. It hadn't peaked the way it is today. And he just felt that that would be a very safe, comfortable place for all of us to go uh, after living in a war. So, yeah. And, and you know, it's part of what, what's referred to as the Gulf region. So, you know, once you're in one of them, you can easily move around and, and access the other countries. 
but I, I'm so glad he did it because o Oman turned out to be just a, a beautiful place to grow up in and, and uh, very peaceful and um, the, the, the generosity of the local people there is just incredible. If you don't mind me asking, what was life like growing up? Or I, I know it only happened for an, a couple of years or maybe even less than that growing up in a, in a country that was at war, because that's a very topical thing right now, because a lot of focus is on Ukraine and the Russian invasion and what's going on with the Ukrainians that are still on the ground. Because when you think about it, it's kind of like the very first war to be captured on social media. Like social media was around for other conflicts, but this seems to be at the right time when the infrastructure has matured, the platforms are there so you can readily get the video up there. Everyone has a smartphone. It's kind of like a perfect storm for getting that information out. So Tell us a little bit about, you know, what it was like for you in Beirut with, you know, fighter pilot, fighter planes up ahead and bombs coming down. Like, how did you go about your day? So every summer, even after we had moved to Oman, we'd go back to Beirut. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess my parents were missing their family and I understand that. But we would travel to Cyprus and then take a boat overnight to get to Beirut because that was the safest way in, because the airport was always either being bombed or being shut. It was horrifying, to be honest. Um, I, I still, even at this age, I still don't like fireworks, to be honest with you. Um, and, and, and it's because it reminds you of, of, of those horrible sounds. Um, you'd be standing at a balcony and then a siren would come out, and that meant you all had to go down to the bunker and you would sleep there. And buildings would vanish overnight. Uh, it, there's really nothing positive to say about it. Um, it it's a horrifying experience. I, I'm watching the news and you're right, you know, today with the way that social media covers things, we're, we're seeing a lot more um, happening in Ukraine than people would have seen in other wars. Uh, the Gulf War or the war in Beirut or, or wars in other countries around the world. But believe me, you, you don't forget anything you see. It, it sticks with you for the rest of your life. All the, 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 the carnage that it causes, the deaths, the, the bodies. It, it's, a, it's just a very uncomfortable place to be around. Well, look, I'm glad your family got out of there and they're safe now. Me but too. Let's talk about your interests, your hobbies. Like what was keeping you busy or occupied when you were growing up? I, I have a passion for football or soccer, as it's called here. Um, that was always a thing for us. We, we would go out and play every single day, um, no matter what the weather was. And, and it's quite warm weather over there, so you're never dealing with snow. But football for me was, was something that I absolutely loved doing. Uh, my brother and my sister eventually moved out because when you're living in Oman, if you wanted to study and you're not a local, you have to go abroad to study. So my brother was studying in England and he was living in a boarding school. My sister eventually moved to the States and they would come back and they would bring all their music with them. And so from a very early age, I was exposed to some incredible music that my brother would bring in and my sister would bring along from, from, um, from the US. And so that became a hobby of mine, just listening to the tracks, reading the album covers, understanding you know, who's involved, uh, what are the different aspects you know, that it takes to build an album. This is well before music videos. Uh, and at school, we had to participate in all the sports. So we were playing tennis and volleyball. It was a very sports-based life. Um, and as we got older, interests obviously changed. And I got more into cars and car racing. So I'm, I, I consider myself a, a big fan of Formula One. Um, but, you know, these are interests that have grown with me. And, and so until today, I, I watch as many soccer games as I possibly can. I will go and watch games at BMO Field and Hamilton with the Canadian men's national team. I'll, I haven't missed a Formula One race in I don't know how long. So 
these are things that sort of stuck with me over the years. Okay, so your favorite football team, you got to throw that out there. Who do Chelsea. you support? Chelsea till I die. Well, they're, they're, they're up for sale. <laughs> you I got know, a spare check, billions I, kicking around. I know. I checked my bank account this morning. I'm not quite there yet, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a supporters trust where millions of people could pitch in and acquire it from Roman Abramovich. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So who's your favorite Formula One driver? Or at least who's, who's your favorite driver? And if they're different, let's say they're a retired driver, who's your pick for the 2022 championship? Because all bets are off this year. All bets are off this year. I, last year and for the last couple of years, I've really been enjoying the way Daniel Ricciardo drives. Um, I'm not a Hamilton fan. I, I know he's an exceptional driver, so I'm not saying he's not good. But for me, just the attitude that Daniel Ricciardo brings to the race, uh, his overtaking methods, I, I've really been um, in, you know, watching him very closely and, and following him. I was delighted when he moved to McLaren. I thought that car would match him perfectly and... Now, hopefully this year is, is going to be a much better year for him. We're going to see him on more podiums doing the shoey. I think McLaren is going to be at the very least the third best team this year. Amen to that. <laughs> and I agree with you on Daniel Ricardo's attitude. Uh, I'm a fan of his as well. And I don't know if you've seen this meme. It's floating around Instagram. It's going back a couple of years, but it's the, um, God, what is it? It's the, uh, it's the Formula One video game cover. And he's the only one smiling. Everyone's yeah, got that yeah, kind yeah. of like stern superhero face. And then he's yeah, off to the yeah. side with a big grin. Yeah, no, he, he's made it very interesting. I think he's he, he plays a big role. I know Netflix has has done incredible things for the for the race and, and gaining its popularity around the world. But I think he makes it a lot easier for people to to associate with it. And he, he brings out the jokes. And I, I think that's quite necessary for this for the sport. It's definitely not as rigid as it was in the 90s. Like if you had Netflix back in the 90s and they tried to cover it, I don't think you'd get, I think literally Eddie Irvine would be the only one you get any content out of. Yeah, it's it's become a lot more entertaining. There's a lot more politics involved that that, that you see these dynamics between racers and teams and uh, their management. There's a lot of great things happening in Formula One. I, I, I still enjoy it thoroughly. I'm going to the Canadian one again this year. I've got my tickets secured and hoping to make it down to the Austin one too. Well, Netflix did make Gunter Steiner a star. He is, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, why do you credit your dad with being your biggest influence? Oh, my dad. You know, I, I immigrated to Canada in 2005. I left everything behind. I had a, a, a really great life, but I wanted something better for my children. And, and that's why we immigrated here. And when I look back and say, why did I do that? Or what gave me that confidence? I, I always think of my father that in the middle of a war where money is really tight and everyone is either giving in or joining the war or, or taking a political side, he said, no, I'm packing up. I'm going to go get everything set up and ready in a foreign country where I don't know anybody. And I'm going to give my kids the best that I can possibly do. And I, I, I respect it so much. And, and when I ended up coming here, I remember speaking to him. He goes, you know, he's like, oh, my God, you left us. You know, you've just gone to the other side of the world with your children and, and, and your partner. And I said, well, you influenced that. It, it, this is all because of you. You you made that move. You sacrificed for your children. And, and that's what I want to be doing for mine. So I, I do. I think of him. He's, he's a hero for, for, for showing us that you can do this no matter what stage of your life that you're in. You can go and, and achieve for things that are better for you and, and, and your loved ones. So, yeah, I, I will always... Look at my father as as as, as a hero in, in that in that point. The fact that you that he picked up the family and he moved you guys to Oman did that make it easier for you to emigrate other places in the world, like your time in England and Canada as well? Like I'm not suggesting there wasn't some element of culture shock when you landed and things to get to get adjusted to, but I have to imagine looking back at it, it was significantly easier than it would have been had you never left Beirut and that was your first move, either going to England or going to Canada? 
I see a lot of people that have come here directly from Beirut, people who who lived through the war and then they got to a point where they just had to leave. And, and I find them having a harder time adjusting in Canada. And I think the fact that we've always lived in a country where we were considered foreigners helped us in, in a lot of ways. You know, my brother at a very early age packed up, moved to England all on his own lived in a boarding school and studied and, and grew to become the economist that he is today. My, my sister did the same thing. It just became um, an, a way of life for us to understand that we can move. There, there, nothing, can, nothing has to hold us back, if you will. So yeah. I, I, I don't regret the decision of coming here. It was really hard to begin with, really, really hard. But, you know, I look back at it today and I, and I understand that a lot of the things that we, we've achieved were worth it. it you know, it made, it made everything worth it. Maz, talk to us about your first job because there was a bit of a twist with this. It could actually be an official job, even though it, it was your job. <laughs> so uh, as a foreigner in Oman, you're not allowed to work unless you have a work permit. And so a friend hooked me up. His his parents owned some corporate office. And we were talking snail mail here, if I'm allowed to still say that term. But I would go around with a trolley. And and this company used to get tons of letters. I don't even remember what they did. Uh, This was basically me walking around with a trolley, handing out mail because I wanted more than the allowance my parents were giving me. So I, that was the only way to do it. And I would get paid in cash at the end of the week. Um, and, and if the, the owner didn't have the right amount of change in his pocket, I'd get a little bit extra because I could never, oh, break, nice. a, I could never break a 50, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, rounding up works to your advantage. Exactly, That's good. Yeah, always round up. <laughs> what brought you to Cypress College and what did you study there? I studied, I started off doing hotel management, then I shifted into uh, business. Cyprus was very familiar with us, especially as Lebanese people, because it's so close to Beirut. And so we would always use Cyprus as a middle ground to get from Oman, let's say, or Dubai into Beirut, right? We would take the, the ferry overnight. So we were all very familiar with Cyprus. And I know a lot of people don't think of Cyprus and think of colleges and education, uh, they only think of the beaches, which were also wonderful, by the way. Uh, but it, it wasn't as expensive for me to study in Cyprus as it would have been for me to go to England or the United States like my, my siblings had done. Um, so we, we decided on Cyprus. It was close to Beirut, so I can hop in and out of there if I ever needed to. Um, I wasn't too shabby at playing football, so I, I got a bit of a uh, some support through playing for the local, for the, for the college team and then with another club. But it, it was really almost a second home for us after Beirut um, to, to be in Cyprus. And I had a great time there. And eventually, you know, you go from, from playing and being, trying to be an athlete to understanding that, Hey, there's a lot more things a college student can do by the beach. So <laughs> yeah, that's you know, attention sure. shifted a little bit, but yeah, that, that, that's really why I got to, to Cyprus and, and, uh, and why it's so, so close to the heart. You continued your studies after um, college or after Cyprus college and correct me if I'm wrong. This is where you packed up and you moved to England and was it, tell me if I get the name wrong, ARTTS International. Arts. Yeah. Arts. Oh God. I see. I didn't even yeah, I didn't yeah. pick that up. I, we yeah. live in a world where everyone's dropping vowels yeah. from names and they're like, you know, that, that, that's the new startup. That's going to be a, a unicorn because it's missing yeah. vowels from a common noun and arts international. So uh, yeah, tell uh, us about Cy- that. Cypress college taught me that things about myself that I really didn't like studying. I did not enjoy the theoretical part of learning. And I, I, I looked around, I wanted to get into the entertainment industry. I, I believe genuinely that I was the next Quincy Jones and I wanted to get into music and Arts International came up in my, my search. I was, I was at the, the British consulate in Oman and one of the, 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 the people working there sort of said, hey, 
have you looked at this? It's a, it's a residence and it's a theater school and it's a television school and you learn all these different things without books. So I applied. I was the first Arab to ever go to that place. It was up in Yorkshire. In a I was small, in the North End. Yeah, small, tiny town. You probably won't even find it on a map. It's called Bubworth. And I spent one year over there, which was probably the most extraordinary year of my personal development and growth. Um, they teach you acting and filming and recording and editing. And then you tour with them in, in a, a, a sort of a, a traveling theater. And I got to play the role of Joseph K. and Franz Kafka's The Trial. And it, it was just a great experience. And, and it wasn't um, very heavy on the pockets, if you will. You know, I, my, my, my parents could afford it at the time. And I had a lot of friends in England, but they were all living in London. So every few weeks, I'd, I'd hop on a train or I'd catch a ride with someone who was going into London. and I'd hang out with my friends from back home. Um, but it, it was an extraordinary experience. And unfortunately, that school has shut down now. It, it's no longer um, an education center. But to show you what a small world it is, it's been converted into a filming studio because obviously it was built and equipped that way. And my brother-in-law, he is a film producer in London. And they were there at that same place that I studied in years and years and years ago and they were filming something and doing some editing work and it was just all this nostalgia was coming back at me at, at once when 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 we were doing a zoom call and he was showing me the holes and um, everything that I that I knew so well so yeah arts international it, it actually stood for advanced residential theater and television skill center so that's where the arts comes from Let's talk a little bit about that role you had in the trial, because playing Joseph K, that's the lead role. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. This plays about an individual who is arrested and detained and kind of in secrecy, and he's not really sure why. That's right. Yeah, it, it's a very dark, dark role. And I, I recall the director, his name was Toby at the time. He came to me, I think, a few weeks after I had because I was we were doing it twice a day. And after two or three weeks of playing it, he, he sat me down he go, and he said, look, I, I think you need to stop because I think it's really affecting you personally. And it, it messed me, <laughs> messed me you're, up. So you're getting method acting on us. I, I was because it, it, it's a very dark role. You're accused of something that you never know what it is. And we were doing it twice a day. So you you never really had a chance to switch off. You were constantly in that in that personality. Um, so yeah, I, <laughs> I I I actually still have the script, believe it or not. I've I've held on to all the scripts that I did that that year. Did that creep up on you? Because I have to imagine that opening night you were probably incredibly, I don't know, giddy and enthusiastic and going, okay, you know, here's the debut performance, but maybe I guess like you said, after a couple of weeks, that's when it started to turn. And did you, did you find that your performance was altered? Like after three weeks, like you were delivering the scenes, maybe a little bit more darker than you were on opening night. The way this theater school worked, the opening night was maybe a month after you were ready with the dress rehearsal. Uh, okay. So you were constantly playing that role. So even by the time opening night came, I was there. I was in it. I was, I was feeling it. I was Joseph. Yeah. It, it, it went quite dark <laughs> for, for a long period of time for me there, but I, I still, I, I, I enjoyed the experience thoroughly. It, it was, it was just a great place to be. And, and I think it played a big role in, in my confidence levels today when I'm asked to get up and present or talk um, in, in front of a crowd. I think that that education played a big, a vital role in, in where I am today with my with myself that way. I hear you on that part because I tend to treat my presentations when I can get back to doing them in person, mm -hmm. kind of like a performance. Yep, absolutely. Like you've got certain beats that you try to hit on different slides. I mean, if you're 
if you're speaking to a crowd, you make sure you're making eye contact with a few people that are going to look at you and not their phones. Although if you're in the theater, I don't think you should have that issue. God, I hope no one was looking at their phones. Well, you can't really see the audience most of the time, especially in a play like that where everything's super dark. <laughs> Very true. What was your first job after college? So I, when I got back home from, from England, uh, I got hired as a junior account executive with an advertising agency in Oman called OHI Advertising. That later became part of um, DDB. And so today they're called OHI DDB. I had a great manager over there. I'm still in touch with her. And, and they really pushed and mentored me. Um, it was the agency style, which is very different than what it is today, where the account team is also responsible for their media and their own production. And, and so you learned all the different aspects and elements of advertising. Uh, we'd go spend days at the printers, watching them and understanding how the printing process worked. We'd spend time with journalists and the media teams and publishers to understand, you know, what it took to go from a creative concept all the way to being in the newspapers the next day. Uh, so I, I credit a lot of my love for advertising back to 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 that agency, and, and it, it was a great experience there. Did you have any initial interest in getting into advertising? Because that's that's quite the pivot, going from uh, studying theater and even business before that, and then jumping right into advertising. So the whole point of the, the reason I even got in touch with that advertising agency through my friend was. I wanted to be involved in the production side of the advertising agency. So I wanted to be working on their television spots and their radio commercials and so on. Uh, but they, my, my manager, she just found a different role for me to play there. Um, and I'm grateful that she did. So it, it sort of transitioned into a client servicing role rather than a TV and, and audio production. And so your next role, this is where you moved from Oman to Dubai. And yes. what, what, what brought you to Euro RSCG? I, I got picked up. They, they, they got in touch with me when I was working in Oman and they said, listen, you know, we're starting up a new agency and um, we're looking for people who, who speak Arabic and English fluently. Uh, and, and so I, I, I you know, packed up, packed a suitcase. I didn't have much to put in it. And, and I moved to Dubai and, and, started working at EuroRSCG and a very different pace to working in Dubai than it was in Oman. In Oman, you, you'd have a week to put a print ad together. In Dubai, it was three hours. Um, so much faster pace, much more um, doggy dog, if you will. Uh, and I got to work on accounts like Philips and Danone, a few of those RSCG based clients that they had. But one of them was Alcatel, which is a mobile phone manufacturer. And I got to work on their business as, as an account manager. And I just developed a really great relationship with them. And I got a call one day from, from the boss at Alcatel. He said, look, we're looking to hire a manager for marketing for just to run this sort of Middle Eastern region. Do you know anyone that's called Mazin? <laughs> and I just said, oh, my God, I would love this opportunity that, you know, to go from agency side to client side is is a goal for a lot of people. And I think it was eight years that I was at Alcatel and they moved me around like crazy. I was based out of India for a while. I was living in Morocco, living in Paris. It was an incredible experience with incredible management and mentors and coaches who really wanted you to be the greatest that you can be at your job. Um, and, and I never looked back. It, it was just a fantastic experience. And, and again, like, like a lot of my jobs, I'm just very fortunate. I'm still in touch with a lot of them that uh, the people that I worked with back then. Oh, there's a lot to unpack with what you just said. I'm looking forward to this part. No, <laughs> seriously. So the, the first one is you were talking a bit about the pace between Oman and Dubai, just working there in general. You said something like three hours to get a print ad together versus yeah. five days or, or a week in Oman. Was that a lot? Was there an adjustment period there for you, like that kind of pace? Because that's the kind of thing that it either you can either run with it and adapt or it can turn you off completely. 
you had no choice. If you wanted the job, you had to keep up. That that was that was really the the, the structure of things. And you know, you're working around people who had adjusted to that system. So for them, it became normal. And by the time I joined, it was normal for everybody. So I felt like I was the one complaining for no reason because for them it was just, hey, whatever, three hours, let's get it done. Um, and and I when I came to Canada, incidentally, and I know I'm jumping around a bit, but it, it's uh, Canada isn't as fast as as Dubai is. It's faster than Oman, but not as fast as 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 Dubai over there. Um, there's the concept of nine to five doesn't really exist. You work till the work is done. Then you then you're done for the day and you go home. So yeah, it, it's a very different pace, but you don't really have a choice. You, you adapt to it very very quickly because it's the normal for everyone. What about the different countries you worked in for uh, when you were at Alcatel? So you mentioned that uh, you spent time in India. You were in Morocco. You were in Paris. Assuming there were some points that you were doing the same job, but you were then doing it in a different country. How did the role change? Oh, it's so exciting. I mean, my my base was Dubai always. So my, my, my partner and my children, they lived in Dubai. And I would be out three weeks of the months at times, just moving around the different regions. Because I originally was just given the Middle East region. But by the time I left, I was responsible for the entire Africa region, entire Asia region, and parts of Europe. Um, and so you have to go and attend meetings in these countries. You're meeting with ministers of telecommunications. You're meeting with the owners of some of the largest uh, providers in those countries, telling, you know, working with them to understand how are we going to market this particular product and can we subsidize this phone and, 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 and so on. And you take some of the experiences and, and you try to adapt them to other countries but you always have to be very mindful of the cultural differences that exist between different countries. Two countries will never be similar in any way. Um, I, we would go into Cairo, for instance, in, in, in Egypt, and we would develop a campaign and we'd say, this is a great idea. We should use this idea in, let's say, uh, Bangladesh. But then we couldn't because in Bangladesh, it would have meant something completely different. So we'd have to readapt the campaign without losing the value of the brand and what the brand was trying to represent at the time. And then each country would only select certain types of handsets. So, you know, the, the, the countries that like India, for example, a handset that was less than $50 was a lot more likely to sell than a phone that was $100 or $20, for example. Whereas in Dubai, people wanted the more expensive one. So you, you really had to learn to adapt between cultures, between uh, what works and what doesn't work from an advertising standpoint. But you also have to maintain that discipline that I am in a different country than I was yesterday. How do I have to behave in front of these partners that we have or these um, vendors or these retailers. It, it's, it's a great learning experience, I, I have to say. You closed out by being the country manager of India. Yes. I want to ask you about that. Like, How fast paced was it in India versus Dubai? And the reason I'm singling out India is because I've had a chance to work, not work with, but I don't know if mentor is the right word, but at least converse with some new Canadians who had come over from India. And there was one woman in particular I spoke with where she showed me her resume and I told her, I'm like, you have got to upsell what you're doing in Mumbai. Like if we in Toronto think that New York city could be scary because it's so much bigger, Mumbai would eat New York for breakfast. And I kept, and I kept telling her, I'm like, you've got to play up how big and how busy that city is just, and I'm not even talking about the country simply because as you know, in media, when you've got more people everything scales upwards. There are more magazines, there's more radio stations, there's more of everything. So it becomes even more difficult for them to do their job because they've got to manage all of these facets that we don't have in Canada or we do, but on a much more limited scale. So going back to that, how did India compare to say Dubai? And I know it wasn't apples to apples completely. Yeah. It, it, it's not a matter of apples to apples. The first thing you have to take into account is the number of official languages that exist in India. 
So you can never create a campaign and say, okay, we're done. Let's publish this across the country and all the leading newspapers. You have to adapt again. So, you know, we were talking about adapting from Egypt to Bangladesh. You, when, when you're living in India, you have to adapt from the north to the south, the east to the west. And then there's a few places in between that need their own uh, creative and what's relevant to them. Uh, we looked at Bollywood at one point to say, okay, can we use some influence out of the Bollywood productions? And that became a, a terrible idea because the movies they were watching, let's say, in Kerala had nothing to do with the movies they were watching up in Gujarat, for example, up in the north. So it, it, it again becomes this whole concept of how do I adapt and how do I change? What is relevant to this group of individuals versus this group of individuals. Uh, it, it's an extraordinary country. It, you, you learn a lot about yourself when, and I was there for almost a year um, uh, in India and I had an apartment and I, I lived a decent life. I, I won't complain about that at all, but you quickly realize that you need friends anywhere you go that can give you that guidance locally, not just about where to eat, but how to react to different things when people uh, are offering you a service or, or people want you to buy into a particular idea that they have. You, you really have to learn that adaptation um, across the board with them. Something you said that blew my mind there about a minute ago was how localized the film industry is in India because well, because we, we know that native films in India are massive. They outperform Hollywood films, but you tend to think, okay, if they put out a big action film, it's kind of got the same reception nationally as I guess a big Marvel film would have in the United States or even Canada for that matter. And over here, even the film industry isn't really divided. It's kind of like, sure, you've got the French films, but then you've got a lot of the Hollywood films and then a little bit of uh, the independent Canadian films mixed in there as well, trying to Jones for share. But it sounded like there were just certain movies that would not fly in uh, certain regions of India at all. So it made for bad business to just stake everything with one film and hope Absolutely. that gave you the reach you needed. No, you, you, you can't do that. And, and, and it's because of the different languages. They, they don't speak the same uh, dialect. They don't, not everyone in India speaks Hindi, right? They, they, they have different dialects and they're almost completely different languages when, when you go across the country. So a movie made in, in one language will not work in another area the big ones the mega heads sure they might they might you know make it across the country but um yeah <laughs> when you go to the south of india which is an incredibly beautiful place um they speak a whole other language than than they do let's say in delhi where i was stationed Eventually, though, you would land in Canada and it was with BE International. So I know we've already touched on your move to Canada a little bit, but give us a bit more information as to, you know, what brought you here, why Canada and, you know, what you were doing at BE International. We got to a point. So my partner is from India, um, which is odd because she wasn't living with me when I was in India. <laughs> uh, but I'm Lebanese. She's Indian. And our, both our children were born in Dubai. And you cannot become a local of Dubai. You're always on a work permit sort of concept. And we were toying with the idea saying, how much longer can we stay here? We've been here for 10 years. Do we want to stay here forever? What do we want for our children? Do we want um, this sort of lifestyle? Do we want to rough it out for a bit, but give them something, you know, access to something completely different than what we had? So we put in our immigration papers and, and the Canadian one came through and <laughs> like a deer in the headlights, if you will, you know, where do we go from here? Like, where do we live? We don't know anyone in Canada. And, and truly we, we arrived in Toronto on February of 2005. Now, I want you to understand, I've lived in the desert my entire life. <laughs> I was about to ask about snow. <laughs> and I only had an Adidas sweatshirt that I was wearing. And I showed up in Toronto in a February uh, with two children, a partner, 
and life just started to happen. We didn't know anyone. We had a phone number of a real estate agent um, that someone had referenced for us. And that was it. I, I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything. And I got in touch with BE International. I had met them before back home. And they said, well, we don't have an office in Canada. Why don't you try it? See how it goes and how it works for you. And I'm very grateful to them for that because you, you need that bit of a push. But it was late nights, cold calling, getting rejected, turned down by everybody when I was looking for a job. Um, cold calling people for new leads to sell them the services of BE International. It was a very sales role, sales-based role, if you will. Um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, look at me now sort of thing. I'm, I'm very proud of what we've accomplished since. But we came here with nothing. We didn't know anybody, no friends, no contacts, no relationships, just the number of a real estate agent and, and um, you know, BE International was, was that sort of uh, cushion that I was able to land on sometimes when, when things were a bit of a struggle. I mean, this is your own thing. Like right now, the, the, the new name of the company is uh, Aligned Communications, correct? So Aligned is my own personal company. It doesn't okay. belong to anybody else. Gotcha. Uh, when I moved away from BE International, um, I decided to set up my own thing as a consulting. And I picked up a couple of other clients that I still have until today. This is since 2005. Uh, and and they just work with me. They are doing um, recruitment advertising. So nothing to do with my agriculture marketing world, but more of a recruitment consulting um, uh, service for international media buying. But that's what the transition of BE International came. But uh, yeah, I, I, I got a job, I think four years after being in Canada, four years of rejections and four years, oh, you don't have, four years of you don't have Canadian experience responses. Uh, I finally got a job at Padulo and, and they gave me a break to become an account director there. And, 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 and that really got me going with local work and, and local brands and, and just the local process of, of doing work. What advice could you give to new Canadians when they hear the same line that is, you don't have enough or any Canadian experience because I think there should be a lot of stock put into what you were doing in Dubai and especially what you were doing in India, Morocco mm. and elsewhere. It's a very tricky question, right? And, and I know a lot of people are asking for it to be stopped. Um, some of those recruiters that said those words to me are today calling me and asking me if I'd like to join one of their clients. This is what I used to do. If 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 I went on a website and the website said, we are a diverse organization, we will hire you because of your skills, nothing else. Then I would bring that up when they say you don't have enough Canadian experience. It didn't do anything. It didn't get me the job offer. But I'd make it a point to say, then stop telling people on your website that, you know, you don't you don't think about these things because clearly you do. What I would say to newcomers is you're going to get a lot of no's, but every now and then you'll get a yes. Those yeses will change your life. Those yeses, you should value them. Get a coach, get a mentor, get involved in, in these local associations that are, that are made in this country for newcomers. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to mentor and speak at a number of these um, associations, which are just immigrants helping immigrants. And there's a lot of great value that one can get from there. So I always say, don't, don't be shy. Take your ego out of the picture completely. Go and attend these association meetings because they can give you a lot of great value. You may not realize that your resume is built incorrectly for the Canadian um, hiring space. We built our resumes back home in a very different method than people build them here. But I didn't know that till I started speaking to you know different immigrant communities that, that were able to help and guide me a little bit. So I, I would always say speak to people who are um, from the associations and, and these immigrant support programs. 
because they can bring a lot of value to your life that you never knew that was missing. I want to ask you about the resume. You brought that up. And the reason I say that is, is that um, earlier on, I had mentioned that there was a woman who had approached me. She had just come over from India about just over a year ago. And she had the chance to interview for a job that I had posted. And she got in touch with me about it and we spoke. And I remember she was pitching me herself. And then I'm looking at her resume on my other monitor at the same time. It was a video call. And I said to her, I go, everything you just said to me isn't in here. And the advice that I gave her was, is that if you've been working on big global companies in India, you got to put those brand names in your resume. Like she had left out like Coca-Cola. I think Pfizer was in there too. And I said to her, go, that's the kind of stuff that's going to get people's attention. Is that something that you would recommend to new Canadians as well Is that, Hey, if you've got anything that might be relatable to what we're doing here, even if it's just the name like Coca-Cola or something that you worked on, drop that in your resume. I, I always tell them to, to, to list them out as much as possible because these, these resume filtering platforms that exist on, on many sites uh, today are looking for keywords, right? It's the SEO, yes. if you will. So it's, it's almost resume SEO that, that, that you have to look into. Um, so I always tell them, absolutely, make sure that you're listing all these things. Use a certain format. Try to use only one color. Take your picture out, remove your date of birth, because these are things that we may have had back home, uh, but they don't use that format over here. Don't emph- don't spend three pages writing about your education because no one ever asks about it over here. Focus on the work experience, your last three jobs or the last five years of your life. Those are the influences that, that will get you uh, noticed or not. And so this brings us full circle. And so what brought you to WS Worldwide? And, you know, did the role find you or did you find the role? It was a bit of both. Uh, a recruiter called me and they said, look, we have a, a company out in Calgary and they don't have anyone in Toronto, but they'd like to hire an account director. I said, you know what? I'll talk to them. Why not? I, I was I was starting to look around. I was I was interested in a move. And I spoke to the founders, Jeff and Susan, and we, we hit it off. We got along really, really well. And I think it was a matter of a few weeks later, they flew me out to Calgary. I met a few people on the team. We continued the interviews. And, and it, it was a very comfortable feeling between the two of us. And I felt like I can trust them. And they were giving me that vibe that they trusted me. And you can see that... Um, when you look at them and you talk to them, you understand that their vision is way beyond just this one office for advertising. They they had much bigger plans. They had much bigger dreams. And and I, I remember I came back to Toronto and the recruiter called me. She said, look, I've got two job offers for you. The first one's from WS. The other one's from another agency. Let's not bring them up now. And she said, almost the same which one do you want to pick? And I just, I just said WS in a heartbeat. I said, I, I really want to join these guys. Uh, and, and so I, I, I accepted the job as an account director. I was the only one living in Toronto and all of them were out of Calgary at the time. And after a while, I think we all noticed that it was really hard to be part of the client servicing team when I'm not right there in the office talking with the creative and the production at at the same time. And they had an idea. They said, look, you have a lot of experience in media. Do you want to take on the media? We don't have a media team internally, but we'd like to. And so I became a media manager for them and then grew that into a media director. COVID hit and suddenly we're recruiting from all across the country. The, the company has been growing tremendously over the years. Uh, we have someone out of Winnipeg. We have quite a few people out of Toronto now. Someone's out of British Columbia, a few out of Calgary. So it, it's become a lot easier almost for someone to, to, to be a part of a company today that may not be in the same city of, uh, that, that you reside in. And I've stuck with them. I, I, I took a year off just to learn a few things in the digital space that I felt I was lacking in. But when, when I called them back up and I said, I'm ready to come home, and, and there was no question about it, I just walked right back in 
uh, as the media director and they gave me some more responsibilities and, and yeah it, it's just i'm happy I, I'm, I'm in a good space and um the agriculture industry is is growing and booming and there's a lot to learn, not just about crops, but about the, the landscape and the soils and how we're going to try to feed the whole world. It's a very exciting place to be. Was it challenging trying to build a department and a team remotely? No, it, it really wasn't. Again, it, it, it comes down to the ownership and the vision that they have. When they give you all the tools and they say, look, we're not going to be asking you questions day and night. You, you, you want this, you figure it out, you make it happen, we'll support you. And that's really been the attitude towards all the new initiatives. The company's now uh, involved in, in, in um, an artificial intelligence company that is helping cats become a lot healthier and happier in their lives. It's called Sylvester. Uh, we're setting up all these different smaller organizations around us. So as, and and you can't do that if your only vision is we have problems and and we cannot grow. If if that's your logic and you're thinking you're not going to get anywhere. So instead the founders have said, look, here's the money, go make it happen and we'll support you. We'll back you up. Tell us what the idea is. And and, and we're there with you. Um, Yeah. So it hasn't been hard. It it really hasn't. It's, you know, as much trouble as COVID has has given us over the years, um, from a professional standpoint, for me at least, I'm I'm very grateful for it. it. It's been it's been good. I guess then you still have recent hires or new teammates that you brought on that you probably haven't met in person. Then, oh my goodness, there's so many of them. But you you feel you've gotten to know them. We spend a lot of time, effort, and money on company culture, because we, we truly want to make it a very inclusive workspace where, that we have. Um, so we spend a lot of time talking and joking and laughing, and we have a lot of company events. But I remember over, over the holidays last year, a few of us got together here in Ontario, and, and you're sort of looking at them saying, oh my God, that's so weird to be looking at this person suddenly in, you know, in real life versus behind the computer screen. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very exciting. And, and the time will come where we all get to sit together and have a laugh and, 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 and joke together in, in person. But the attitude is so positive that we are, we're ready to do whatever it takes to make it um, a, a positive experience for everyone. So culture has been a big thing uh, at our agency. You're also taking all of your knowledge and experience and you're putting it to work for students and you're doing teaching at George Brown College. What course are you teaching there? It was a marketing and communications course for advertising. Um, there's there's someone I, who the industry knows really well and I'm going to credit her with all of this. Her name is Tracy Bull and I'm sure you know her. Oh, I know Tracy Bull. She's, she's been on this podcast. Yes. So Tracy said to me something. I actually took her programmatic course with the IAB. I've taken that course too. It's a wonderful course. And she's just a, a brilliant mind that, that one can, you know, I can spend hours listening to her. And, and she, she actually took me aside and she said, if you want to grow and if you want to do better things, you've got to get more involved. Volunteer your time where possible. Try to do some teaching. And so I took all these things <laughs> and then I became a member, an independent member of the IAB. And I'm, I'm now chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. I jumped in with the Ad Club of Toronto and I've, I've volunteered with Digital Day. And, and I, I took on this gig with, with George Brown. Um, it was one course just to, to listen to the way these students think and how fresh their ideas can be and how um, how powerful their, their minds are was a great eye-opener for me. I, I enjoyed teaching that course thoroughly. Un- unfortunately, because of schedules, it's hard to keep doing it throughout the year. But it's certainly somewhere where I want to go back um, to, to, to doing it when, when, when possible. But I, I really encourage everyone to try to do that on, on you know, in, in areas that they feel that they can contribute. Volunteer with an organization in advertising. The, the industry needs it. 
um, try teaching. And <laughs> I, I remember I, I went off track completely with the curriculum that I was given because I, I called the professor. I said, the, the, head, the head professor, I said, look, Danny, I, I need to tell these kids what programmatic advertising is. It, it's so necessary for them when they leave school to know what this concept is. And he said, do it, do it. You know, very open-minded. And, and I, I, I really enjoyed really enjoyed doing that. I'm still in touch with all the students on LinkedIn and it's wonderful. You know what programmatic advertising needs? It needs some sort of, I don't know, demo platform. One where you can go into it with fake money and fake ads and a fake exchange and you can actually learn on the go. That's the one gripe I have with programmatic, that the only, the best way to learn is on the job. But in order to do that, you need to do it with someone else's budget. Yeah, and there was a sandbox at the time where you can go in and dabble with these things. I don't know if it still exists or not, but a lot of the DSPs are making it available um, for for newbies to to play in a little bit. So uh, I agree with you that there's a lot more that we can be doing for it. But I think at the core, anyone coming out of college today in an advertising um, credit should understand the basics of it at least. Maz, this has been fantastic. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Let's do this. All right. The campaign you are most proud of. Impossible to answer. I've I've enjoyed my career in advertising. I've had campaigns that have won awards, campaigns that really should have won awards. Um, From doing an ad in, in Oman to Dubai to India to Morocco to Paris to working on 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 campaigns in this great country i I cannot pinpoint one campaign that says this is the best one i've done i've done a ton of great ones all right i won't push you because that's like asking you to pick your favorite (laughs) child (laughs) all right your favorite movie snatch that guy Ritchie movie i've i've enjoyed all of his movies but there are just some of those movies that when they come on television no matter where they are in, in in timing you'll just sit and watch them snatches one of them i like a few of the old comedies like airplane uh, anything by mel brooks i've probably memorized all his movies as well but you gotta yeah, be a Spaceballs fan yeah i a huge space balls and blazing saddles my goodness just hilarious snatch though i mean brad pitt's unrecognizable in it like i it's, can't understand anything he's saying and even though and even the way he changes the shape of his body too and he yeah, yeah. drops his shoulders and his face you kind of have to do a double take and go, it looks like a real roughed up malnourished version of Brad Pitt. That's a great film. Just really well written. You know what I like about Guy Ritchie? He's getting back to those films with the gentleman mm. because he deviated a little bit and tried to do them, tried to do something more mainstream with like Aladdin and King Arthur, yeah. which, and even uh God, what was it again? Um, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm more of the snatch lock, stock and two smoking barrels that that's sort of genre of, of, of off his movies uh british gangster films did you pick that up when you were living over there pretty much yeah <laughs> i understand them a lot so. your favorite play or musical and i threw this question in specifically for you no one else gets this question <laughs> so i can't say the trial by franz kafka because <laughs> I, i'd lose a lot of friends on that one um i i didn't it wasn't very long ago since i probably the last few plays that i got to watch and i i watched the book of mormon which i just found was brilliant the cast the energy the chemistry it was just a really feel-good kind of play i i I enjoyed it thoroughly when you were living in uh, england and you made it down to london as frequently as you did did you go to west end plays a few i don't even know if i can recall most of them but one we had to because it was part of the 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 course to go and attend as many as possible uh two we all had student passes so we can get in dirt cheap we didn't have to pay the heavy prices that that other tickets uh, other ticket holders had uh, had to pay but we we got to watch quite a few of them None of the big ones that eventually became really big, like The Lion King or Hamilton, there, there weren't any at my time when I was studying there that had that sort of reach and appeal. Even if the play or the, the musical isn't that appealing, all of those theaters in the West End are works of art. It's almost they like are. you just want to go to take them in. They are, and they all have so much history inside of them. Um, if, if you do love theater, 
it, it is a place to be for sure. Your favorite video game? Oh, no brainer. FIFA, Gran Turismo. Um, my son's taken my PlayStation, so I don't really get to play as much as I used to. And, and with the work schedules that we have, it's a little harder to do these days. But I, I've always enjoyed a good game of FIFA. Um, and, and I love my racing. I, I play Formula One, but I've always preferred Gran Turismo because there's a bit of a rally aspect. Yes. Oh, are, are you going to be getting Gran Turismo 7? Because I was just watching, I don't know if you're familiar with Jimmy Broadbent. On, I uh, am. I was, yeah. He was doing a live stream earlier today yeah. of uh, debuting it, and I was looking at that going, you the have to shake your head a little bit and go, no, that's a video game. Yeah, the graphics are in- incredible on that game. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? <laughs> well, I'd like to think this is an, a, a great opportunity for Idris Alba, let's say, to, <laughs> to, to improve his portfolio of movies. No, I, I, I really don't like, I, I know Idris Alba was born in the same year as I was. So that's why I, I think of Idris Alba. Um, and, and I use his image as an example when I'm talking to audiences about uh, you know, building a persona. Be careful because Idris and I were born on the same day and we both like movies, but we're nothing alike whatsoever. <laughs> so be careful how you're building your personas. But yeah, I, I'll I'll pick Idris Alba. I, I think he'd make me look really good. I think he's got the range for it. Oh my goodness, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? This too shall pass. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's life is not easy, and and I'm not saying mine is harder than anybody else's out there. But I I've put myself through situations to be a better person, to do better for my kids, do better for my community. I've I've tried a lot of things, and sometimes you're gonna be given those obstacles, and and I've I've had to endure them. Um being an immigrant in this country and having your family back home and losing loved ones it, it's a lot and and it, it it's an emotional roller coaster so i i would say this too shall pass because eventually it, you move on your favorite book oh i wish i was reading a lot more than i than i am i i, I really and i'm ashamed to say it i haven't read a book in a long time but I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, thrillers, these mystery thriller kind of, um, uh, you know, Clancy's and Robert Ludlum's and, and, and the likes of that. Th- those are sort of my, my genre of books that I, that I enjoy. Your favorite song? So in the scope of a day, because I've always got music playing, I will go from reggae to heavy metal to hip hop and then maybe to thrash metal and in one day i i just i do not have a song that i prefer nor a, a genre that that i would always listen to i'm i'm a mixed bag of of music and, and there's always something playing in the background for me i've been to millions of concerts uh, music is an absolute passion and, and, and has been a constant positive place in my life forever so I, I cannot pinpoint one song. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's all good, but that's still quite the range. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> Your favorite podcast. And you do not have to say this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- there's a whole bunch of them. So, you know, I, I, I like the, the, uh, the formula one, one, of course, um, there's a few great sports podcasts. Um, I like today explained it, 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 as a podcast, it, it really helps me organize some of my thoughts about what what what's happening in the world today. Ninety ninety percent invisible. I know it's quite a popular one, and and I do I do try to listen to it every now and then. Uh, there, there's some great content out there. It, it's it's fascinating how 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 great um, how all these great content creators like yourself are, are giving a lot of information to, to people to, to know and to improve. It's, it's a really brave thing to do. Well, thank you for the kind words. I do have another podcast though, to add to your list. You mentioned the formula one podcast. I assume that's yeah. beyond the grid. Yes. Have you checked out bring back V tens by the race? I think I saw you write something about that somewhere. I haven't, I, I, oh. I, I will check it out though. 
I'm telling you, if you want to relive basically, oh, I want to say 1990 to 2005, the guys at the race media are doing a phenomenal job of bringing together certain people that might have had a hand in a very specific time. Like, I'll give you a really good one if you want to kick off one. Uh, yeah. Nigel Mansell, uh, returning to Formula One in 95 full-time with McLaren, which, as you know, did not turn out to be full-time no, at all. No, and there were even year. rumors that Nigel couldn't fit into the car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. If you start with that one, it, it's it's the episode that keeps giving. You keep listening to it going, <laughs> really, that happened too? I, I will check that one out for sure. I'll send you a link to it after. It's fantastic. Mm. You'll get addicted to it. Perfect. The best advice you have ever received? Nobody owes you a damn thing. You want it, you earn it. it, it, it. I think so many different people have said that to me throughout my life as a child. My parents used to say it to me. My coaches said it to me. A couple of teachers said it to me. Um, and after a while, I started to feel, hey, am I, am I act behaving like an entitled person? Um, but, but really, it stuck with me. I, I expect nothing from anyone. Uh, no one owes you a damn thing. So if anyone helps you, anyone's good to you, just be really grateful to it because they don't owe you anything. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Everything that hits you along the way. And I'm trying to be mindful of the language that I'm using, but everything that hits you along the way is really going to fuel that next step of your life. All the hardships, all those obstacles they mean something they'll make you stronger they'll they'll make you they'll give, they'll help you make much more informed decisions so it's okay suffer a little bit cry when you need to you're going to lose a lot of battles but just just keep going because you won't make the same mistake again my signature closing question if you weren't in media what would you be doing and why i'd be the next quincy jones man <laughs> so <laughs> I, I i have this commitment to music and and i always wanted to be in the music industry I, I thought i could be a producer i thought i could be a songwriter as well at one point in my life i i genuinely believe if if i hadn't walked into that advertising agency not that i regret it but if i had not walked into that advertising agency eventually i would have walked into a music studio and, and i'd be there right now maz this has been fantastic thank you so much for your time thank you that's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.